Make them laugh. Easier said than done, right? Let's talk about that. I'm humorist and educator Jerry Dry, and I'm joining host Barbara Tucker for this episode of Dialogues with Creators. Welcome to the first installment of this new podcast, Dialogues with Creators. Of course, there are two first questions. What and why? What is this podcast about? And why is it about that? Even better, why another podcast? The mission of this podcast is to explore the lives and work of creators and creative people in the Northwest Georgia and Tennessee Valley region. That is, at least for now, our geography. But that might expand in the future to other parts of Georgia and the Southeast. Since I live part of my life in academia, let's define terms and start with defining creators and creative people. I will avoid the word creatives because I think it's ungrammatical. So by creators, I mean people who make materials of life and life experience and transform them into a different form. As a Christian believer, I see all of life coming from the real creator. And our creations are not ex nihilo. Our creativity and creations take what we are given in nature, color, form, sound, and language, and human experience and add to, combine, and shape them into something unique. One of the great things about creativity is that it sneaks up on you and overtakes you sometimes. Ideas and forms and patterns and words and sounds come out of us that we didn't plan. That's a phenomenon we will explore with our guests too. I'm a creator with words. I write novels and plays. I also create in the classroom as a professor. I have friends who create in their homes. I have other friends and colleagues who create in musical performance or on the theatrical stage or in screenplays and films or in nonfiction writing on canvases or with cameras and computers. So while the geographical parameters for now is the 50 mile radius around Dalton, Georgia, the subject parameters are creativity and life. The visual arts, the musical arts, film arts, teaching arts, theatrical arts, literary, leadership, and even organizational arts. Not all, in fact, not most, will have a spiritual focus, but that informs everything I do. So don't be surprised if existential and spiritual questions grounded in a Christian worldview come up sometimes. I plan for these podcasts to be 30 minutes long because I think podcasts longer than that tend to be rambling. However, I reserve the right to separate the interviews into part one and part two if the subject matter warrants it. Before I go on, I have to extend my thanks to our producer, Clemencia Viafuerte. Say a few words, Clemencia. Hi everyone, I'm Clemencia, and like Dr. Tucker, I have a variety of interests in artistic and creative endeavors. And so this podcast is sort of like an ode to all things creative and productive and artistic. And we hope that you enjoy listening and learning from it as much as we did putting it together. Thank you, Clemencia. Clemencia is one of the BA in communication majors at Dalton State College and a student at the Georgia Film Academy. She is interning this semester and helping us get this podcast underway. And she's also helping with other aspects of the department. Finally, we are interested in sponsors to defray costs. So you can contact me about that and you will get a commercial on the podcast. Now on to our first guest for this inaugural podcast. He will be a treat for listeners, and I confess I picked him because he always draws a crowd. He and I have been discussing this podcast business for a while now, 
just like we discuss communication, public speaking, organizational leadership, and of course, his specialty, humor and humor in communication. So it's no surprise that my first guest is Mr. Jerry Dry. Jerry, I'd like you to frame this conversation by telling us as much about yourself as you would like. Thank you, Barbara. I Well, first of all, I'm, I'm 6'2", 185 rock-solid pounds. I run a 4440 and can bench press 350 pounds. Now, I don't tell you that to brag. I just want to demonstrate that I do have a creative imagination. And since that is sort of the theme of, of your podcast, I'm, I'm happy to do that. No one listening will know the difference. Anyway, I'm just a, a regular guy who uh, was a hyperactive emotionally disturbed child with a speech impediment who has run the gamut of occupations and vocations and avocations over the years. And I now learn people to talk good, among other things. And of all the things that I've done, whether it's been in broadcasting, stand-up comedy, in the college classroom, humor has been sort of at the forefront and has undergirded really everything I've ever done. Thank you, Jerry. And I have to confess that you may hear laughter in the background between myself and Clemencia, because as you can tell, Mr. Dry is funny. (laughs) It may seem different to some listeners that I'm starting a podcast about creative people with a humor communication scholar and a humorist, but I can't think of anyone else or any other endeavor that takes the material of life and nature and transforms them. So, Jerry, how do you define humor? Or even more, how do you define funny? Well, it's a great question that uh, people smarter than me, and that's a long list of people, have have debated on for years. And it's really a very individual answer. Uh, there are some, obviously, some scholarly answers. I, I think humor is communication. And uh, Southam says that humor is any communication that produces uh, merriment, mirth, amusement, laughter, smiling, and uh, usually involves an element of surprise. But the, the thing about humor is it's kind of like art. In fact, humor is art, I believe, uh, in that I don't know much about art or music, but I know what I like. I know what I recognize what speaks to me. And humor is, it, among other things, uh, the S word is very important. That is, it is subjective because it is in the eye and ear of the beholder. Because I remember one time I was, uh, I was a guest on the radio and uh, the fellow was interviewing me. And it sort of organically came up and I said, well, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of funny people whose first name is Jerry. Jerry Seinfeld, of course, at the time that, of the, that I did the radio show, he was the, the number one funny guy in the world. And he has earned about a billion dollars. <laughs> You're just close to a billion dollars making people laugh. And I mentioned Jerry Clower, the country humorist that passed away a few years ago. There's Jerry Stiller, uh, Jerry Colonna, who used to work with Bob Hope, Jerry the Cartoon Mouse. And I, of course, obviously, I was trying to uh, make a, an implication, you know, that, you know, having the first name Jerry, was obviously, you, you got to be a funny person. But, and it's interesting, somebody called into the radio station and took exception because they didn't like Jerry Seinfeld. But again, humor is subjective. They also found some, they didn't like the style of humor they used. They thought it was too, he thought his humor was too, uh, he thought it was offensive. But he, he said, he's not funny. He's not funny was the, one of the phrases they made. And then he said, he's not a comedian. 
and say, well, I'm sorry that you're offended by my including him on this list, but he is, by definition, a comedian. Is, he is currently the most popular, most the highest paid practicing comedian in the world right now. And so I, I, I wasn't making a quality assessment with this list of comedians named Jerry. I was just saying, here are some people who are professionally funny, but, uh, whose name is Jerry. But he, he said, well, he's not a comedian. He's not funny. I said, well, that's your view. He doesn't make you laugh. And I understand that. You don't have to laugh. But humor is very subjective. So just like two people can look at a painting by Degas, and one of them will say, that's that is beautiful. It speaks to me. It moves me. Another one will say, I don't get it. You know, it's just, what does that even mean? Uh, it's just subjective. And, and humor is very much that. So it's defining it is always a bit of a challenge. And, and I, I, E.B. White, of course, is famous for saying, studying humor or trying to, uh, you know, in some way figure out what it is is kind of like dissecting a frog. The only person really interested is the scientist and a frog dies of it. So it, it really is something that is very personal to each individual. Yes, I can think of discussions we've had where we've talked about individual comedians or comics and and whether I found them funny or whether other people would. And a lot of it had to do with their subject matter and their approach to life, language, what they were willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so there is a, a big subjectivity pattern in humor communication and humor. So here's a softball question. What would you say are the sources of humor? What makes us laugh? And is laughing always associated with humor? Yeah. Thanks for the softball. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take the last part of that question first. Is laughing always associated with Obviously, uh, laughter, we laugh for different reasons. We, we laugh sometimes because we think something's funny, and sometimes because we're nervous. Uh, sometimes we laugh out of uh, just a moment that it comes out of the field of surprises. We don't necessarily think it's funny, but it's the laughter. Uh, it's not funny, ha-ha. It's funny, weird, funny, strange, funny, odd. It, it's interesting that uh, there's so many different styles or, or types of humor, and, and most of us are drawn to one or two styles over the others. I was never, growing up, I never was into what we often refer to as scatological humor, you know, bathroom humor, that kind of stuff. I, I never cared for that. I, I think it's, I, my own view is that it's uh, it's too easy. It's not classy. It's just, it's and, and for me, it's not even funny. And, and I have never found that amusing, but for some people, that's brilliant. I remember my uh, my wife wanted, there was a particular singer that she enjoyed, and he was going to be appearing at, uh, at a big rodeo. So I bought tickets, and uh, I went, I took her to see this singer off for her birthday, even though, you know, I've had many birthdays, and, and he's never come to see me, but that's that's beside the point. So we're there, and and I was, there was a fellow, a young man seated next to us, and he just heckled and mocked and ridiculed the singer, you know, just being obnoxious, and it was a little disturbing, because I, I paid good money to, for my wife to have this experience, and so on. But it can, you kind of just take it easy. So he 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 didn't enjoy the singer, but he didn't want anybody around him to enjoy him either, which was quite annoying. But the the rodeo clown, in this guy's view, was the comic genius of all time by going out and making corny, old, stale jokes 
Now, that's not even, you know, the, the rodeo clown's job, first of all, his first job is not even to be funny, it's to keep the, the cowboys from dying. And but so he he had a shtick, very broad physical comedy that, it, you know, if he was trying to make it just as a comedian, that's not really his fort. You know, it's, it's not his wheelhouse, his milieu, if you will. But but this guy thought he was he was funny. So it really is a matter of perspective of what speaks to you. I don't like these uh, home videos that they show where people get hurt. I don't find that amusing, you know, because you know, somebody can seriously be injured. I've seen some of these videos where people get on an elevator and somebody will scare them or act like they're going, you know, a menacing or a monster or something. And I think that's, I, to me, it's always wonderful when the person who gets on and that they try to scare us with a knife or a monster matter, if they just knock the snot out of them. I, just, I find that amusing because that's what you get. You know? uh, so some people like really highbrow, cerebral humor, wordplay, those kinds of things. Some people like the slapstick pie in the face kind of things. I, I like to think I have an eclectic sense of humor that I enjoy a lot of different things, but um, but I, I really like smart stuff too. Yeah, the other day, I was sitting at the house in my little library that we have. I was reading a story by James Thurber about a couple at a tea party. And uh, Thurber died in 1961, but the, the stuff that he wrote that I was reading was just as fresh today as it was when he wrote it. And I was sitting by myself laughing out loud at some of the stuff that Thurber wrote. So um, comedy is really kind of, I don't I don't like to use the word universal, you know, like music is the universal language, but humor really is universal. It's been around since people started. People ask me sometimes in workshops that I've led, well, where did humor begin? And so one day I just said, oh, well, that's easy. It goes back to the cave people days when uh, two cave guys, Ugg, which was a common name for cave dudes in those days, and Irving were standing there talking. Irving is not as common a name, but they were standing there just talking, chatting, talking about, you know, let's go kill the mammoth and that kind of thing. And uh, while they were there, one of the prehistoric barnyard fowl, sort of a, you know, a cave chicken, just kind of decided that he would cross the path and go from here to there. And so uh, Irving looked at Ugg and said, uh, I wonder why he did that. And what happened was Irving became the first straight man, giving Ugg the chance to say, well, you to get to the other side. And that was the first joke. And it's the oldest joke. Because people have asked me, what's the oldest joke? I always tell them that's, that's what it is. Nobody knows. <laughs> There's no way of knowing. Or if you can even, the first joke may not have even been identified as a joke. But we have tried to make each other laugh since we've been, been around as a species. You know, children... Uh, they tell us, researchers tell us that children, they laugh hundreds of times a day. Of course, it's very easy to make a child laugh. You put a French fry or a straw up your nose, you know, and they're just, you know, if I, if I had played only to uh, audiences of, of toddlers, I would have filled arenas, you know, because they you just go in and make funny faces. And <laughs> He's a comic genius. But um, it really is uh, something that, that we, are, we do naturally. And then we try to talk ourselves out of doing it as we grow because we become more serious. And, and so adults only laugh a few times a day because we, we're, you know, the stresses of life, when we need it more, but you know, to help us get through the stresses of life, we're too busy, we're, we're too serious or whatever. I, I tell people, you know, you, you can be a serious person and still have a highly developed 
sense of humor and laugh a lot and enjoy you know, enjoy life. You know, just because you do that doesn't mean you're no longer a serious person. When I tell people I study humor as a part of my academic life, you know, oh, well, and then uh, I've had other academics say, well, I, I do important stuff. So, okay, yeah, just, you know, it's part of the warp and woof of the human nature. Right. But, you know, thank you for dismissing what it is that I do, you know, my passion of my life. Yes, I think that's interesting <laughs> about the idea of the first joke, because we can look back in, in uh, great literature of the past and even the Bible. I, if I don't want to get off on a preaching binge here, but if you look at the book of Esther, there's a lot of humor in the book of Wait, Esther. Let me get, it. Let me get one. Okay, uh, there's no Bible here. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in the book of Esther, you've got the situation where the remembering that it's written by Jewish people who have been exiled and sort of oppressed by these Babylonian and Persian folks. Mm -hmm. And the first scene in the book of Esther is that the king's wife, uh, Vashti, says, no, I'm not coming to meet your guests. And that the Persians get so upset so you can you can see the digs that are being made at the Persians. And then later there's a scene with Haman and falling on the Esther's couch and being caught. And it's a typical little risque thing there. So even in those situations, they're they're sly, but there's humor there. There's sure, meant to sure. be an element of surprise, an element of, you know, involved in the in the text. So, uh, yeah, I I just find the, the, the sources of humor funny. And if you don't mind me telling a couple of stories here, as a public speaking teacher, that students will come out with things that they say because they're nervous. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I had a student last semester say that in a speech on serial killers that Jeffrey Dahmer discombobulated his members, his discombobulated his <laughs> victims. And it was so hard not to. Yeah just lose it in the moment because it was it was a funny change from dismembered which is a horrible thought and it was unexpected and it was a tense situation in the classroom and you know so there, it's so I, I tell my students that humor is very contextual and that from it can be wonderful and comforting and and supportive and help immediacy and help in your teaching and so many things and public speaking but it also can be a little volatile sure and risky oh yeah, uh, yeah. so <laughs> welcome to my world yes, <laughs> yes it is risky because it's so easy to be misunderstood mm -hmm. it's you know it's i have said the most innocent things that were taken wrong and i felt bad badly about it but uh, but it happens. I, 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 I you're talking about Esther, and of course, Esther's famous, as I understand it, for the with the makeup, right? Did you know she they, they took what about a year yes. to figure out what the right makeup mm -hmm. would be for her before she went in and said, "Hey, King, how you doing?" <laughs> and um, you know, because I I've I've done a lot of gigs in sort of faith based mm -hmm. places, you know, and and so I've had people ask me some odd questions, and so I. I it was in one place and somebody asked me about, you know, should women wear makeup? <laughs> and then it was a woman that asked me. And I said, well, I think you might want to consider it. Um, but no, I, I didn't say that, of course. Um, you know, no, so I, I said, well, you know, Queen Esther, you know, wore some. You know, uh, but she got it just right. Uh, and I was in a, a Baptist church and someone asked me, said, can Baptists dance? I said, some can, some can't. I said, what I mean is, uh, do they dance? I said, well, some do and some don't. 
And then finally they said, well, I'm sorry, I should ask it this way. Should Baptists dance? I said, well, some should and some shouldn't. Um, I don't like to get into those kind because of, that's not what, what I'm there for, first of all, mm-hmm. is to, to do the theological treaties on, on what, and, and people have so many different opinions. But I, I have, I, I am, you know, every humorist has their own voice. And, and my voice is, is, is very, uh, my voice is not the voice of, say, like a George Carlin. You know, George Carlin was a genius, but he would use language that I would never use particularly in some of the corporate boardroom or the faith-based place, uh, I wouldn't use But I wouldn't use it anyway. That's not my voice. It's not who I am. And, but as again, again, you can accidentally offend people. I, I had this bit that I did about the difference in men and women. That's a requirement, by the way, if you do comedy ever. And I, and I, I boiled it down to uh, the, the essence of it was that men get lint in their belly buttons and women don't. And, and I know this is true because... When I'm traveling and I'm away from home for several days at a time, my wife will wear one of my shirts to bed every night so she'll feel close to me. She can wear go a week wearing my shirt eight hours a night, rolling around in bed, and, and her belly button's as clean as a whistle. And I, I come home, put the same shirt on, and five minutes later, I'm the human yarn barn. That's just science. I, and I've done that thousands of times, and I've done it in corporate boardrooms, concert stages, church banquet halls, Dairy Queens, all over this great land of ours. Perfectly innocuous, perfectly innocent. But I had a lady come to me one day. She was very offended by that, by my use of the term belly button. Um, I, I had to apologize to her, you know, and I did, certainly didn't mean. But she, she, she felt like my use of the, talking about men and women's belly buttons in some way, aroused the males in the audience. And it made me think back to like Gilgan's Island and I Dream of Genie, you know, in the days when they wouldn't let the naval show on, on television. I thought, well, I, you know, we don't really, of course, this, this guy's a limit now for what you see on television. So so I guess we don't have that perspective. But she kind of was coming from that perspective. So I never had, had thought about it in the same way that, uh, you know, I don't want to get you in trouble to get you a bunch of letters and cards for your podcast, particularly since this is the first one. But, you know, dog people and cat people are different. <laughs> and uh, I like I like all animals, of course. I would confess that I guess I would be more of a dog person than a cat person. But I had a cat one time that was cool only because it thought it was a dog. But I, so I did this thing about the difference in dogs and cats. And I, I talked about the mythology of cats. And one of the, the, the myths about cats is that they always land on their feet. And they don't always land on their feet, especially if you duct tape their little feet together and toss it off the roof. And um, so, again, a lady comes up to me and says, I can't believe you said that. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't. Because I, I was thinking I didn't even do the belly button thing. What is it? She said, you know, talk, I can't believe you would throw a cat off a roof. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, madam. It's a joke. I would never do that. That's what I should have said. What I did say was, well, you know, you can do it eight times and still have your cat. And that didn't really help. So, but 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 for me, since I was a child, humor has been a a, a coping and defense mechanism. So that's that's kind of my go-to. Not always wise to do that, but it but that is my go-to if I sort of get uh, in in trouble or disturbed, upset. I use humor uh, as a, as a coping mechanism. When I was a, a youngster. Earlier, I mentioned being hyperactive and emotionally disturbed. My mother died when I was seven. I had a speech impediment. When I talked, people laughed at me. And not just other children. It was adults. Adults would try to get me to say things 
that they knew I was going to mangle so they could laugh. And I knew what they were doing. And so it, I found it hurtful and uh, I didn't want to talk. And, you know, I, that, that old thing about I'm not laughing at you, I'm laughing with you, is usually said by someone when you're not laughing. And I know the difference between laughing at you and laughing with you. And I wasn't laughing. And so when I was about eight years old, I was in a barber shop. And uh, it was one of those typical sort of uh, southern small town barbershops with the folding chairs all around. There's about 40 men on a Saturday morning. And they were talking about the war in Vietnam. And they were talking about politics. And they were talking about sports, particularly college football. They learned a lot of things about life, listening to those guys on those Saturday mornings in the barbershop. They talked a lot about women emboldened as they were by the fact that none of them were there. You know, I, I learned a lot about women in, in that barbershop uh, from those men. I have since discovered that some of that information was inaccurate and, and some of it dangerous, really. So uh, I've dismissed all of that, that, that false information that I heard. Uh, but anyway, we're sitting there. I'm sitting next to my dad and all these guys. And guy gets into the barber chair who was then like I am becoming more and more now. He had lots of hair around the side of his head, but didn't have any on the top. I'm eight years old. That struck me as amusing because it is what uh, humor scholars would call the incongruity theory of humor, the mutton Jeff effect, if you will. So I saw a bald man in the barber chair, struck me as an eight-year-old as a funny sight. And I said to the man out loud, so you're going to get a little taken off the top? And now I have since learned it is not appropriate to make fun of people's physical characteristics. But as an eight-year-old, what did I, I didn't know anything about comedy or appropriateness or interpersonal skills, so I just said it. But that was a moment that changed my life forever because it was what happened next. Every man in that barbershop laughed uproariously, including the man in the barber chair. In fact, he was laughing harder than anybody. And it changed my life because now they were not laughing at me. They were laughing with me. And in fact, there was one guy in the room that there was one guy that didn't laugh, and that was my dad. You know, now he we had a long conversation on the way home, you know, and he taught me about, you know, appropriateness and all of that. But it changed my life because it finally felt so good to hear laughter instead of painful. And, you know, so if I am if I'm doing a workshop on humor or I'm doing a stand-up gig or a storytelling event and people are laughing, I still feel that same way as I did as an eight-year-old in the barbershop. It feels so good when they're laughing with you and not at you. Wow, that's fascinating. You had so many things you said that I I would have some comments on. Thinking of those ladies who found offense at your comments that we would consider innocent, innocuous. I think of the angel Mencken quote that a Puritan was somebody who's afraid that somebody somewhere is having fun. <laughs> right, right. And which is a form of humor. Sure. And of course it was in that case based on a misunderstanding of who the Puritans were. Sure, because I think the Puritans were a happy-go-lucky group. They don't get a lot of credit for that. In fact, I have several albums at home with Puritan comics that are doing stuff. It's a, you know, you yes. always have a vanilla, a scoop of vanilla ice cream when you have that, you know, listen. So anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I the people are often offended by things that you would never think that they would be offended by. And... 
I think with age, you also realize that you're not going to make everybody happy anyway. But uh, but as a humorist, you would and a, a comedian or a humor scholar, that would be, a, I would think, an, kind of a source of fascination and a source of uh, concern for you. So you've mentioned a couple of uh, comedians like Carlin and Seinfeld and such. And we usually, when we think of funny, we think of comedians, mm-hmm. professional comedians, and we all have our favorites. And I, I think you have uh, a wide and a deep view of the comedians in uh, that are around us now. I know that in your one class, you had something called the, the Mount Laughmore uh, assignment of who would be on the the if there were a, a Mount Rushmore of comedians right. who would be up there and that's always an interesting thing to think about um, individually who would who would be there and for myself I'm not sure who I would put there but I, I do think Seinfeld's very funny and I would like you I would tend to be more of the observational humor the Brian Regan those kinds of things the storytelling as opposed to just the straight joke tellers, the Henny Youngmans, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, take my wife, oh, please, yeah, you know, yeah, that kind yeah. of uh, thing from the from our past. Uh, and of course, there are some comedians who have since fallen into disrepair, you might say, or disrespect that we won't mention, uh, who were quite funny and quite the the name when back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But we are not allowed to talk about them anymore. <laughs> and one of those I would have put on my Mount Laughmore. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if I were if I were doing it. Yes. Yes. So, in fact, that one, I'm sure that you're thinking yes. about, it probably influenced my style of humor growing up more than any other humorist. And probably a lot of people. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, whereas someone like Richard Pryor, although I understand why people found him funny, I was kind of like, eh, not, he's not doing it for me to just belly laugh. Whereas he who shall not be named or <laughs> um, some of the others would would be i like oh. i always liked uh people like rich little who could do the oh, um, yeah. uh the impressions still, still working today yes. mm-hmm. in his age and I, to me rich little is uh is still the standard bearer for impressions i wanted to be an impressionist when i was a kid but i discovered i wasn't any good at it <laughs> you know <laughs> i would love to have done that but uh, uh you know it's a very very distinct skill i think frank caliendo yes. currently oh, is a really hilarious. really good one and there are some other actors and comics who, who do that that's they're not known for that specifically but they do kevin pollack does a, mm-hmm. does, a, does a lot of those and others do but but um it's interesting you mentioned richard Pryor and george carlin that you know when the first thing when you mention those names people think oh you know curse word profanity but if you look at they also have a lot of stuff they've done that there's no profanity at all they're still funny that's the difference between them and somebody who's just talking dirty mm-hmm. you know trying to get a cheap laugh you know and in fact george carlin's uh routine that he does on the difference between baseball and football it's not i don't think there's anything in it that anyone would find offensive and it is brilliant and funny and and, and my, very, very clever. Well, um, you know, I, again, I, I think that there are some people who can use language that that some of us wouldn't use and use very intelligently and cleverly. But there's an awful lot of folks who are just kind of, like I said, just talking dirty because it's easier than working hard and creating real humor. Well, I had a, my brother and his wife went to a, a local co- comedy club and they they were sort of shocked and it was sort of, well, everybody's drunk, so I can say bad words and they'll just laugh yeah. at anything kind of an attitude. 
Well, you know, talking about body parts and functions at two o'clock in the morning to about six or seven drunks out in the audience, that's not that you don't have to work that hard. You know, that's you're not working. You know, that's and that's a shame. But on the other hand, I think it's fair to say that there has never been a time in history where uh, comics, comedians, humorists, there's been more scrutiny. Uh, because, uh, you know, oh, we're going to listen to every word that she or he says so that we can catch them saying something that might offend this group or that group. And, and so it's 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 really tough in a way because the humorist is supposed to comment on social things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the old court jester, uh, you know, they had some scrutiny, too, though, because if they offended the king, you'd go to the guillotine. But but, uh, you know, I think we're sending some folks to the guillotine now. Uh, because uh, it, it's so easy to offend people now. Mm-hmm. Well, I, Seinfeld has said he won't do college campuses anymore because of of that, and people don't find him funny. And I always found him very innocuous in his humor, but you know, uh, he I think he's just it was more of a, a protest on his part, maybe. And and when I say you know people like Pryor, um, he's he's sort of Dave Chappelle is sort of in that that line of they are making great social commentary about race relations and things like that. And, and to that extent, they are, they have a voice, they have a message on top of their humor. And sometimes it's, it's harsh, you know, but it, it needs to be. So there it's a, it's a different kind of endeavor, I think, than maybe someone else would be doing. Well, the person who generally thought of as America's greatest humorist, Mark Twain, that he was a real social commentator. He used humor to make some difficult points. Uh, along comes Will Rogers a few years later. Oh, yes. He's he's gentler mm-hmm. than Twain, but he's still making some humorous comments about you know politics and government and the and, and uh, social mores and life. And so it's, it's really it's a time honored tradition. Uh, we just we're a little more sensitive maybe about it now, I suppose, and and then we're a little too. Partisan, I think, you know, Will yes. Rogers was, in fact, a Democrat, but he made as much fun of his own party as he did the other party. And uh, and it was again, it was gentle. It was, uh, you know, you, you you laughed at your own foibles because he, he was able to shine a mirror at you and a light at you and and show us that we're imperfect, but that we're all part of the same human family. And we want to fix stuff. We got to work together. And you can do that with humor, but now we're so uh, we're and some humorists are just intent on destroying maybe a group or a movement or something. And I think that's you got to be careful about that too, because that can be that can be a little dangerous. What was the Will Rogers quip? He said, "I'm I'm not a member of any functioning party. I'm, I'm not a member of an organized party. I'm a Democrat, right? <laughs> you could, but you can do that. You can turn around and use Republican. Yes. Uh, you can use that, and uh, you know you can talk about that if you're." You go if you're a member of one church and go to another. You can do that. You know, I was, uh, I you know, I grew up as a Baptist, like a lot of people. Of course, some people grew up as nothing. will say Baptist just because it's the most common. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Baptist church. <laughs> and uh, you know, I don't know why you're swinging dead cats. <laughs> Probably because they fell off the roof with duct tape on their feet. I, I was doing. I actually had a gig for a state group of a different, they were Lutherans. The meeting that was it was in their sanctuary of one of the, the big Lutheran churches. And I was I was kind of moving around and I talked and I hit their baptismal font and almost knocked it over. Fortunately, I didn't, I was able to catch it, you know. I, I knew what it was, but I thought I would, you know, play a license. So, oh, I'm sorry, what, what is this? 
uh, one of the members said, uh, oh, that's our baptistry. I said, how do you get in it? <laughs> you know, because they had already outed me because they said, what Lutheran church do you go to? I said, I go to the First Baptist Lutheran Church, you know. so um, And so they laughed, of course. It was, it was gentle. I didn't mean, you know, obviously, you know, it's a different approach, but that's okay. Mm-hmm. You've been listening to part one of our discussion with Jerry Dry, Associate Professor of Communication at Dalton State College and Humor Scholar. Join us next time for part two of our discussion where we get into comedians, storytelling, and how to use humor in the classroom. Thank you.